bulletin. Um, our text this morning consists of three separate passages from three separate books. Now, I'm going to tell you why that's the case in just a moment. Uh, but for now, I simply want, I simply want to invite you uh, to open to Matthew chapter 1 uh, and then to mark the other two passages as well so that you can get to them quickly because we're going to be sort of all over the place today. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground, and I want you to be able to get to those places uh, when we get there. Okay, so Matthew chapter 1 and in verse 1, Genesis chapter 22 and in verse 18, and then also Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29. It's sort of like Bible drill. Uh, we're going to be all over the place. Okay, y'all with me? Let's start with Matthew chapter 1. I guess I need to turn there myself. Matthew chapter 1 and in verse 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 22 and in verse 18, it says, And your offspring, uh, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And then Galatians 3:29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to consider uh, what are familiar passages and familiar truths from your word, uh, we ask that you would uh, allow us not simply to just pass by these verses as another Christmas series, as another Christmas message, but that through the work of your Holy Spirit, uh, you would apply these truths to us so that once again we might be awestruck by your glory, uh, by what you have done for us, and we ask this all to your glory in the name of Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, with the, the Christmas season now fully upon us, I have been reminded once again this year uh, that for me at least, there is sort of a gift-giving, or gift-buying rather, danger zone. A, a time where, where things sort of get, um, could get out of hand if I'm not careful, okay? So uh, if I start shopping like six weeks in advance, then you know the pressure is not very much. I can think things through. I can buy them appropriately, and, and it's all going to be fine. If I wait, on the other hand, to the very last minute, then the pressure is such that I've just got to get it done. No matter the crowds, no matter what I may think these people actually need, they just got to have something. And so if I wait to the very last second, then we can be okay. But it's sort of this like two-week window that turns into the danger zone. You know, with, with two weeks left, I've got just enough time where the pressure is not quite overwhelming, you know, and I can still sort of think about it way too much. Like I could order something on Amazon and then I would have, you know, two weeks to think, is this really what this person needs? It just turns into a big stressful situation. And so two weeks, two weeks is the danger zone. Now I tell you that because I realized this week as I was trying to think through a two-week Christmas series that there is a, a sermon preparation danger zone and it may be that same sort of two-week window. Uh, you know, if you have six weeks to tell the Christmas story, then you can get all the, the various characters, and you can let the story kind of build, the suspense go. If, on the other hand, you only have one week, then you have no choice but to get down to the heart of the matter, right? 
You have no choice but to go straight to the shepherds and the angels, or go to Mary and her song, or go straight to the manger itself. But the question that I was asking myself all week this week is, what do you do with two weeks? How do you present the amazing, life-transforming story of the Incarnation in two parts? Where do you divide the story? What characters do you include? What characters do you not include? Which is often just as important. Uh, how much do you really cover from week to week? You know, it is a Christmas, Christmas sermon series, that's a mouthful, Danger Zone. Uh, and again, it's one that I wrestled with throughout the week. And all that wrestling, it resulted in what you have before you today, okay? One primary verse, Matthew 1.1, uh, with two supporting verses that we will consider as we move along. And it's going to be the same thing next week. It's going to be the same verse, primary verse, with two different supporting verses that I hope, as we move through these two weeks, are going to point us to the Christmas story as a whole. But not only that, uh, and you're going to see this today, my goal is to get us to think in a larger way about the full story of Christmas, okay? What I want us to do in these next two weeks is really take up God's redemptive plan, to really consider the whole of what has led us to this place with Jesus in a manger. How have we gotten here? What is it that we truly are celebrating at this time? Friends, I believe that Matthew 1.1 is a way for us to get there, okay? Again, remember, he says in, in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of God, the son of Abraham, and the son of Isaac. Again, what I want to submit to you over the next two weeks is that the full extent of the Christmas story, the full extent of God's gracious plan to save a people for himself, it is wrapped up in that one single verse. Jesus as David's son. Jesus as Abraham's son. It tells the whole story. What I want us to consider is the amazing truth of what that means. Again, I want to submit to you that Matthew isn't simply listing ancestors here just for the fun of it. No, he is in a very real way telling a story. He is in this little section of Scripture here, one that we would be tempted to skip over time and time again. He is confirming the hopes and all of the expectations of God's covenant people, not only here at this time, but throughout the ages. This one whose birth Matthew and Luke are going to record for us, this one who we now celebrate through this season, he is the seed. He is the King. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And friends, that's a story we need to hear. It's one we need to hear over and over and over again. And so today, let's take the first part of this, and let's consider what it means that Jesus is the son of Abraham. And so turn with me back to Genesis. Let's go back, actually, all the way to Genesis 12, where the story begins, okay? And again, this is going to be... I was sitting here thinking this is going to be a very quick, redemptive journey that we're going to go on here, okay? And so you're going to have to sort of bulk of your seatbelts here and just hold on, and I promise we're going to get there, but just get ready, okay? 
So the first thing I want you to notice in these verses that we have before us is a promise made. A promise made. Genesis 22:18, but beginning back at chapter 12, you remember there uh, that God, he calls Abram. Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, away from the, the traditions and the beliefs of his pagan family. And he calls him to come and go to a land that God will show him, a land that he has never seen. And he gives him this promise in verse 2 of chapter 12 there. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a promise. A promise that God will do these things for Abram. And Abram, to his credit, acting on faith, he takes his wife and his nephew Lot and he sets out as God has called him to do. He, he believes by faith the truth of what God has said. But you'll recall uh, that many years passed. Many years. And the truth of God's promise, it became harder and harder for Abraham and for Sarah to believe. In fact, when God comes back to him in Genesis 15, you can flip there if you'd like, he comes to Genesis 15, and there God reaffirms the promise in verse 1. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward. It shall be very great. And then again, down in verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God is, is reaffirming his promise to Abram. Do you remember there in verses 2 and 3? Abraham's faith at this point, it has grown weak. He has begun to doubt all that God has said. And he says, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And then in verse 8, he says, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? That is, the land that God has promised to give him. From an earthly perspective, it seemed that, that the promise that God had made, that it had or it would, fail. That there was no way that God could at this point bring it to pass. But the God of, of Abraham, he, he is a God of his word. And to prove the truth of that statement, he gives us here in Genesis 15 one of the most amazing scenes in all of Scripture. And I know you have heard me say that many times from this pulpit, but this time I mean it. It is one of the most amazing scenes that we will ever see in our lives. You remember, he calls Abram. He says, go and take these animals and cut them in half. And you lay one half on this side, and you lay the other half on this side. And what we're getting at here is something that would have been very familiar to Abram. It would have been very familiar to the people of that day. It was a covenant treaty that he was entering into, a suzerain vassal treaty is what, it was, what we call it now, ancient Middle Eastern studies. That's what we would have called it. And the idea here was that a suzerain, a ruler, would come in and he would conquer a people. And he would say, here's, here's what I require of you. I require that you follow me. I require that, that you give me your tithes, your taxes. 
I require that, that you would fight for me if we go into battle. But then he would also give those people a promise. I promise you that if you do these things, I will be a king over you, and I will protect you, I will guard you, I will give you the things that you need. And in order to seal that promise, the suzerain, the leader, he would require the people to pass through the pieces. They would walk literally down the street, just right up the aisle there, with pieces on both sides. They would pass right through the middle. And the idea was is that if I don't do what I just promised to do, may what happen to these animals, cut in half and laid in the street, may that happen to me. I'm agreeing to this on the, the terms that if I don't do it, you, leader, are going to come in and you're going to do this to me. Now, go back to Genesis 15. God calls Abram. He says, cut the pieces in half. Lay them on both sides. But do you remember what happens next? Abram goes to sleep. He falls into a deep sleep, and suddenly God, in this vision, appears to him. And what happens is, is almost unbelievable. It should be unbelievable to us. It's not Abram who passes through the pieces, which is what we would expect, but who passes through? God passes through. Do you understand what God is saying in that moment? He's saying, Abram, here is my promise, and I am so committed to that promise that I, the God of all creation, the God who does not change, the God whose word does not fail, I will show you how committed I am. If it fails to happen, may this happen to me, the God of all creation. It's an amazing picture. It is an amazing picture of God's condescension to Abram. He didn't have to do that. He was, his word is sure and true. His word would not fail. He could have simply said to Abram, you know what? This is what you're going to believe because I said it. But because he knew Abram's faith was weak, because he knew our faith is often weak, he showed us how committed he was. If I don't keep this promise, may I take the curse of the covenant. Now keep that in mind. Hold it close, because we're going to come back to it in just a moment, okay? Now, you would think, given all of that, that now Abram would, can be, he would be convinced, and for a while he is. But if you turn to Genesis 17, you'll recall that many more years pass. And Abraham and Sarah, they're now old. 99 years old, way, way past the years of childbirth, even for people in biblical times. And they know, they know that, that the chances are none for them to have a son of their own. They, know, they do not have a, a seed, a, an heir that has come from Sarah. So God comes again, once again, to reaffirm the promise to Abraham because Abram's his faith is weak. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to multiply your descendants. They're skeptical. I'm going to give you a son. Sarah laughs. She can't believe it. I'm old. Abraham, he says, oh, well, I have this, this son who is from my household, but, but he's not from Sarah. Is he going to be the one? God says, no. No, that neither one of them are going to be the one. I'm going to give you a son, Isaac. 
And then sure enough, in Genesis 21, it's exactly what God does. The Lord visited Sarah in verse 1 there. As he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, he did what he said, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Now, pause just for a second. Here he is, the child of promise. Here he is, the seed of the woman born under amazing and miraculous circumstances. God was faithful as he said he would be. But then, and this is the last time we'll have you turn, turn one more time to Genesis 22. Because then, it seems that after so great an act, God is now ready to take it all away. You remember in Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham and he says, Take your son, the only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains to which I will show you. Friends, I just wonder if we can put ourselves in Abraham's position just for a moment. This was the long-awaited child. This was the one through whom all the promises that God had made would be fulfilled. On an even more personal note, This is the only son of Abraham, the one whom he loves with all his heart. Can you imagine the thoughts running through his mind? Can you imagine how overwhelming the desire was to to grab Sarah and grab Isaac and get his stuff and get out of there and say, Lord, I'm just like Jonah after him, flee, run away. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to be a part of something like this. God, how? could you do this? How could you take Isaac out of Abraham's story? Well, friends, to his great credit, Abraham, he doesn't flee. He doesn't even seem to argue against the the premise that God gives him. Instead, he saddles his donkey, he grabs Isaac and two of his servants, and he sets out towards the mountain that God had shown him. And after two days and two nights... On the third day, they come to the mountain. You remember, he tells his servants, he says, you stay here. And me and the boy, me and Isaac, we're going to go to the top of the mountain. And we're going to go and we're going to worship. And very key phrase, and then we're going to come back to you. At that point, Abraham believed. He didn't know how. He didn't know where. Somehow God was going to bring him and Isaac back down that mountain. Because God had promised still. Can you imagine the trip up the mountain? You know, Isaac's figuring things out. He's looking around. He's going, Dad, where's the sacrifice? He knows this routine. He knows what they're supposed to do. And there is no sacrifice. Can you imagine Abraham's questions, his fears, that they had to be overwhelming? And surely those questions and fears only grew as he built the altar as he tied up his only son whom he loved. And then he raised his hand with the knife in it to do what God required. Can you imagine 
the, the pain. Can you imagine what he must have thought in that moment? But then, a voice speaks to him. He says, Abraham, Abraham. And in verse 12 there of chapter 22, he says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in the thicket. God, Jehovah Jireh, the the one who provides, the one who sees, he saw and he provided for his servant. He provided for his people a sacrifice so that Abraham would not have to deliver up his only son. God made a way. Now, to really speed things up about 2,000 years, you'll remember that through Isaac, God's promise in some degree or another begins to be fulfilled. Sure enough, Israel becomes a great nation. They're in Egypt. They're in slavery. God delivers them. They become a great nation. They go out and they take the land. You remember that all along the way, it's obvious that that something is not quite right. The doubts that plagued Abraham, they continue to plague those who follow. Their faith, it it wavers, seemingly at every turn. And then their sin, it it, it always threatens to undo everything that God had promised. The great nation that God made, it eventually splits. You know, the ten tribes in the north, they're taken into captivity by the Assyrians, taken from the land. And then eventually, the the two tribes in the southern kingdom, in Judah, they're taken to Babylon, taken into exile, so that the land God had promised is now empty of all of his people. His people no longer possess what he had promised they would possess. And even when they return, that, that small remnant that returns in 538, they had to have been asking, is this it? You know, they, were, they were a shell of what they were under David, a shell of what they were under Solomon. They had to have been thinking, is this what God had in mind when he promised to our father Abraham that he would bless us, that we would be a blessing to the nations? Is this what he meant to do? Would he leave them in that state? Friends, for 400 years, that was the question. What's God doing? Where is he? He he was silent. He didn't speak. After Ezra and Nehemiah, they did not hear from God for 400 years. But as we read this morning at the birthday party for Jesus, then something wonderful happened. God did speak. He gave them exactly what they hoped for in a way that they never would have imagined. So that leads us to our second point, a promise fulfilled. And it's back in Matthew chapter 1 and in verse 1. You know, much like Abraham and Sarah, those Israelites, they waited and they waited and they waited to the point that no one could have blamed them for their questions, for their doubts, for their concerns. But again, Something miraculous was coming, and it did come. A baby boy who was born of a virgin, conceived where there were no expectations, conceived where there were were no earthly reasons for a child to be born. And that baby boy 
according to Matthew here in verse 1, was and is a direct descendant of whom? Abraham. And so you can imagine how that news must have begun to spread. Maybe, maybe now, finally, this is the one. You know, John the Baptist comes and he's proclaiming it. And so everybody's going out saying, hey, did you hear? There was a, a child born. A child who is the son of Abraham. The one who we've waited all of these years for. The one who's going to deliver us from Rome. Deliver us from oppression. Going to make us once again a great nation. So that we might be a blessing to all. And that's certainly what all the angels and all the magi and all the star, the star in the sky, that's certainly what it all seemed to indicate. Here was the one Israel had longed for. Here was the seed of Abraham that would lead them. But you know, as with Israel in the past, there was a problem. A problem facing these people. And it was a problem that they or you and I don't willingly want to acknowledge or deal with or see. It was the problem of their own sin. And so when that little baby grew up and started calling these sons of Abraham, you remember how they cherished that title so much. They would throw it around like, you, you talk to me, but I am a son of Abraham. You, don't have, you can't speak to me about these things because I am a son of Abraham. When Jesus, the true son, when he started calling them to repentance, when he threatened their whole religious system, they decided pretty quickly that maybe this Jesus wasn't the one after all. In fact, maybe this Jesus is one that we need to get rid of that we don't need to have around at all. But here's what they forgot. They forgot Genesis 15. They forgot the extraordinary promise that God himself took upon himself. He had passed through the pieces. Not Abraham. God had passed through. He had taken the curse on himself. And now... Here he was to see it through to the end. You see, this, this Christ, this Jesus, he was not merely a son of Abraham. No, he was also the son of the Most High God. And he had condescended. He had stooped down to take on human flesh. He became what he had created so that the true seed of Abraham could do what Isaac, what Jacob, what Moses, what David, what none of the Old Testament figures could ever do. He came to redeem. He came to bless and to fully establish his people. And again, how did he do it? By taking the curse of the covenant by taking the curse of those who had broken God's promise, by being the one who stood in the place of the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice for his people. Friends, you see what God did for Abraham. He stopped his hand. He said, you will not kill this son whom you love dearly. God did not do that for himself. Because God is the God who provides for his people. He poured out his wrath 
not upon those who deserved it, not upon these Israelites, not upon you or I, he poured it out on his only son. His only son who he loved dearly. Not just with a a human love, but with a perfect, unchangeable, eternal love. Jesus became the ram in the thicket. He became the spotless lamb of God who would stand in the place of others, stand in the place of sinners. Friends, this is Genesis 12. This is Genesis 15. This is Genesis 17. This is Genesis 22. This is Abraham's story fulfilled. This is that passing through the pieces enacted where we can all see it. Christ broken, his body bloodied on our behalf. What Abraham did to those animals there in the vision is what Jesus truly and really took upon himself so that now that promise of Genesis 22 that through this seed all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, now it can be so. Now it truly can be fulfilled. And that's our third and final point. I want you to see here a promise applied. And you see it there in that verse in Galatians. And really, I wish we could read through this whole chapter of Galatians 3, but we don't have time to do that. But just note, Jesus didn't come merely to save those who were by blood children of Abraham or to save those who were by right of descending. Dissension? Dissension? Is that the right word? They descended from Abraham. No. The Jews, who always, as we said, love to throw that term around, it's not just merely them that he had come to save. Jesus had come to save those who, by faith, would look to and trust in him. Just as Abraham had trusted, just as he, before he went up on the mountain, said to his servant, Me and the boy, we will come back. By faith, he walked with the Lord. Now, now, this one who is greater than Abraham, in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. He comes, and by faith in him, Jews and Greeks, the verse says there in Galatians, if you read back, slaves and free, women and men, American and Chinese, black, white, Asian, all people who belong to him by faith, who are in Christ. They are now Abraham's offspring. Friends, you and I here in New Albany, Mississippi, some four to 5,000 years after the events of Genesis 12, Genesis 22, some many thousands of years later, with no blood right or claim of our own, pagans, just like Abraham, he has called us out of the feudal ways of our fathers, and he has made us his own. He has made us sons of Abraham, but more than that, he has made us sons of the Most High God. We are now God's family that he has promised, that he has established and that the Son has shed his own blood to call his own. 
And so I submit to you here in six words, Matthew says Jesus is the son of Abraham. I think that's six words. I think I counted it right. He's telling us a whole story. He's telling us all of redemption in those six words. And praise God in Christ. This is our story now. This is your story and my story. If we are resting in him, we who were once not a people, we who have no right to a promised land, we who have no right to his blessings, we are now a people. We now look forward to an eternal land, according to Hebrews 4, a land that will not pass away, a land that is always flowing with milk and honey, where we will be blessed forevermore. And even now, in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. It is that little baby born in the manger who gives all of God's promises to all nations. Last thing, in Matthew again. You remember uh, in chapter 1, on down, in Mary's Magnificat. She gets it. Uh, she, she understands what's happening here. Not in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Luke. Luke chapter 1. And there at the very end of her song, she says this, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to who? To Abraham and to his offspring forever. Here he knows the truth. What's happening to her what is about to unfold is the result of a single promise. A promise that God made and that he would not break. A promise to bless the nations. And because that's true, that's true, you and I, and I almost finished with this song today, we're not going to do it because it would take too long, but we can sing that Vacation Bible School that we, song that we sing every year. Father Abraham, he had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And guess what? I am one of them. And so are you. And so what's the result of that? Let's go and let's praise the Lord as we pray together. Father God, we do praise you for your great plan of redemption. A plan that began at the beginning, really in Genesis 3.15. A plan that you would send a seed of the woman to come and to bless every nation. And Lord, now, as we celebrate this Christmas season, we see the fulfillment of it all. All of your promises. Promises to Adam. Promises to Abraham. Promises to Noah and to Moses and to David. They are all yes and they are amen in Christ. And because he has fulfilled them all, by faith, we now look to him, and as we look to him, we see the truth. We see the reality that we are part of your family. You have called us in. You have made us sons and daughters. We are your own. Lord, what a privilege. What a joy. May it send us out into a lost and dying world.
to go and to, to tell it all, to tell everyone, go tell it on the mountain, the truth of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, may that be the story of our lives, the story that's always on our lips. We ask it for your glory, for your praise. Amen.